Tonight, Hollywood's Scary Movie Man returns. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Well, good evening to all of our friends and family across the United States and in more than 50 countries around the world. We are thrilled to have you with us again tonight. And Gary and I always know that uh, you're taking time out of a a very busy schedule to be with us for a few moments of rest, relaxation, and entertainment. And uh, I think we can both assure you that tonight you're going to get plenty of entertainment value uh, from tonight's episode. So sit back, relax, and uh, join us for a really incredible story or two from uh, the golden days of the golden, uh, the golden days of studios. Studios <laughs> and classic horror films. And classic horror films, yeah. Um, tonight, returning uh, for a uh, second appearance, we have with us an incredible human encyclopedia of all things related to Hollywood's classic scary movies. And his name is Greg Mank. Greg, welcome back to the show. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you. It's very good to be here and very good to be talking to you, Richard and Gary, again. Very good. Let's go ahead and start off once again and remind our viewers or for the new folks listening in for the first time about the two new books that you have out. Yes. Uh, the, uh, there's a nonfiction book called Angels and Ministers of Grace Defend Us which is uh, a story about the backgrounds of uh, a number of classic horror films, such as Island of the Lost Souls, Bride of Frankenstein, Werewolf of London, uh, the 1941 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, so on and so forth, 13 chapters in all. Uh, there's a lot of fresh, brand new, recently discovered material uh, that throws some of these films into a very, very much a, a whole new light. Uh, that book is available from McFarland, um, and also there is a novel that I've written, called Frankenstein's Witch, St. Lizzie Pray for Us. Uh, this involves the shooting of the classic 1931 horror film Frankenstein, during which time the people in that film, the legendary Boris Karloff, Colin Clive, director James Whale, and so on, become involved with a real-life witch. I say a real-life witch, actually. She's a fictional character, all right? Uh, but uh, in the story, she's a real-life witch, all right? So um, we, uh, we have a real, it's, it's, it's a wild story, and, and uh, it, it covers a lot of different things, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of passion in the story, uh, a lot of, of uh, well, it's one of the, it's one of the um, reviews say is redemption, religious mania, sexual obsession, guilt, sin, so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it's a lot, a lot there. So um, I think it's an exciting book. A number of the reviews have said that it's a, it's a page turner. Uh, I think uh, once you get into those characters and, and see what's going on both in both sections of the book, both the section that takes place in Hollywood in 1931 and the part that takes place in Southern California in the summer of love, 1967, uh, that it, uh, uh, as they say in the beginning of Frankenstein, it, uh, you know, it may shock you. So, um, in, in a, in a positive uh, way, of course. So <laughs> both of those books are available. You can find them on Amazon or you can reach me about getting a copy, uh, through me or actually, and at, uh, my website. And that website is www.gregorymank.com. Uh, 
www.gregorymank.com. That's www.gregorymank, all one word, gregorymank.com. And so there I am. Thank you for letting me do my commercial. Oh, yes. And uh, if people are uh, thinking about doing some Christmas shopping and need an additional item, I'd like to recommend a book called The Very Witching Time of Night. It's by Greg Mank, of course, and it's Dark Alleys of Classic Horror Cinema. Um, truly a for, wonderful book also, for, Greg. For anybody who wants to have a horror book for Christmas. It's the, it's the perfect <laughs> that's right, selection. That's right. Perfect for holiday giving and getting. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Unless you like to celebrate Halloween by giving gifts, you could do that too. So, well, there you are. <laughs> last week, we promised uh, Greg, Gary, that... Uh, we would uh, tell our own uh, story about Robert Carradine. John Carradine. Oh, John Carradine. Robert Car- I don't know who that one is. Robert- no. but John Carradine, I've heard of him. Yeah, because we actually have a connection to John Carradine. Yes, we do. Um, have you? I'm very eager to hear it. Have you yes. ever heard of um, a classic cult director by the name of Ted V. Michaels? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Gary and I uh, worked on two of Ted Michaels' sequels to the Astro Zombies, the original Astro Zombies movies. Oh. And uh, Gary was a second unit director, and uh, I was associate producer, and it was uh, Astro Zombies M3 cloned, and Mm. then uh, Astro Astro Zombies Zombies. M4 invaders from cyberspace. Yes, it was a very interesting experience. Oh, yeah, Gary really liked working on that one because he also did the special effects, and he got Uh to blow up the... uh, uh, Big Ben and uh, some temples Gate. in Japan oh, wow. and Brandenburg yeah. Gate. He had rocks coming down and crushing the people there in yeah. uh, Germany at the Brandenburg <laughs> Gate. <laughs> All the fun oh, things you get really to do. really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We were talking about it in a Denny's restaurant. Yeah, one well, day you get a lot of looks when you start talking about yeah, uh, blowing up places. You <laughs> have to throw that word in special effects so somebody doesn't call the yeah. authorities and end up in jail. Yeah. But anyhow, uh, if, um, if you think about it, uh, the original Astro Zombies starred robert carradine john carradine john carradine you know what i'm i'm thinking of robert wise i'm getting ahead of myself because i want to later on talk to uh, greg about robert wise and Mm -hmm. curse of the gap Uh but uh john carradine okay um one of the uh, stories ted told us was that uh, when ted uh, he had uh, his own production company tvm global entertainment uh and um he, he actually lived in a castle there in Hollywood. Uh, in Glendale. Mm. In Glendale, yeah. Uh, it was a huge castle-like place. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, one of the uh, days he was in the office, John Carradine came by and uh, sat down, talked to Ted, and asked him if he had any uh, roles coming up that his son David could play because his son David was in need of some work. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, Ted didn't at the time, but I thought that was, that was kind of an interesting thing. Uh, you know, when you're there in this really closed society in Hollywood and you know everybody else, you're not, uh, you know, shy about asking favors for yourself or your family. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, uh, much like what you talked about uh, last time you were with us, uh, his performance in Astro Zombies, he didn't uh, hold back or just phone it in. He put a lot of heart and soul right into every single bit of it. And Ted always told us whenever he worked with him, he said that he was one of the most professional actors he had ever worked with. Yeah. yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. He just adored acting. And, and um, uh, you know, he, it, was, it was like a, a, a sacred calling to him. And um, 
you know, and of course, and he did so many terrific things. I mean, he was in all those John Ford films. I mean, he he was, uh, 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 you know, he had been on contract at 20th Century Fox in the late 1930s as a character player. He, uh, you know, he had a very interesting stage career um, uh, in New York. Um, uh, and of course, he had done, he did, you know, theater everywhere. I mean, he would do theater, you know, in a restaurant lobby. You know, I mean, he would, he would, any chance to act, he would jump up and start acting. Um and and he did. He just it just really sustained him um, because again he had a he had a tough personal life. He had a lot of problems and a lot of money difficulties and so on and so mm. forth. Apparently, uh, but um, uh, he um, you know as long as he could act, uh, he, he was he was uh, he was fine. You know as long as as there would be another role coming up that he could do, then he was always uh, you know he always you know found the fortitude to go on. And that's very, very interesting that he would, you know, he would come and ask for, you know, work for his son back in those days uh, that, that, um, you know, because I think that um, from what I've read back and forth, David wrote a book about, uh, about his life. And he said that, um, you know, that, uh, you know, there were times when he thought his father might have been a little bit jealous of him, you know, that um, uh, he was kind of alternated between, you know, great pride in David and all his sons who were actors. And also that he was, uh, but at the same time, you know, he was, it was kind of like, you know, he was the great Carradine and, and <laughs> you know, mm. he, didn't, he didn't want necessarily for, uh, you know, to be upstaged by his own brood. But, uh, but that's a, that's, a, that's a great story. I'm really glad that he, uh, you know, that he went, 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 went up the bat for, uh, for David that early in his career. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't he in stagecoach with John Wayne? He sure was. Yep. He's in stagecoach. And he, it's interesting. He's the only character. In the great chase, you know, the, the magnificent chase with, with uh, you know, in, in near the climax of the picture, uh, in which the uh, the Navajos are chasing the stagecoach, and um, he, uh, they have that big passenger, you know, all those passengers crowded into the coach and on top of the coach and so on and so forth. And Carradine's the only one that doesn't make it. He's the only one who gets shot. So poor John, they carry him out at the end. Yeah. That, so he doesn't know. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't survive the uh, the, the, the most the, probably the most famous uh, Western you know Navajo attack and of all movies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, he beat that and drums along the Mohawk and the Grapes of Wrath and and uh, just you know he, he, he some of the greatest movies ever made and some of the worst. Yeah, 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 and the fact uh, that you're in some of the greatest ever made that that seals your reputation mm-hmm. forever. Oh yeah, and yeah. like you say, yeah. uh, and he, but he did. He just he just loved it, and uh, you know he would. Um, uh, uh, you know, it was always the funny stories he used to tell about him when he first came to Hollywood. That you know when he didn't have work and nobody knew who he was. That he would he would just walk up and down Hollywood Boulevard and recite Shakespeare, and um, you know he was sort of like a. Uh, curiosity in Hollywood at the time was, you know, this, this, this Shakespearean character who wandered up onto the boulevard and and would, you know, recite uh, Shakespeare to the palm trees. So, um, oh, wow. was, yeah, he, <laughs> that's he interesting. Was, he was quite, quite a guy. Yeah. He yeah. Was, uh, and then we go up to the Hollywood Bowl at night uh, when, it, you know, like, like at two o'clock in the morning when nobody was there and he would recite Shakespeare to all those empty seats to, to build up his voice, you know, uh, back when he was young. And, um, uh, would go up there to make sure that he was able to project. So um, wow. he, he just he just loved it. He just was absolutely a, a disciple of acting and, and just loved every minute of it. 
John Carradine. One of his uh, not-so-memorable films, because I can't even think of the uh, title of it. I don't know if you can, Gary, but it's the one where a little girl is kidnapped. It's one of Ted's. Uh, oh, no, that was a little boy. Uh, what is the name uh, of that? I can't think of the name of the movie. Uh, it, uh, it, was, it wasn't that bad, though. It was a pretty good film. And it wasn't one that Ted directed. It was one that he did the cinematography uh, for. Somebody else okay. directed it. Okay. But it was him, and then uh, I can't think of his name. He... Uh, Oh, that had a few stars in it. I'll have to look it up. Okay. So Ted did the cinematography on he that He did one. the cinematography on that one. Uh, the uh, Astro Zombies uh, sequels that uh, Gary and I worked on uh, in in a very unusual way did feature John Carradine, even though John Carradine had passed away many years before because Ted had a wax replica of his head made and that John oh, yeah. and that John Carradine head played an important part in both of the Astro Zombie sequels. Yes, he was continually trying to destroy the world from uh, from his fish tank. Yeah, from his fish tank. <laughs> well, I will have to check that out. You got to give me the title of that so I can see that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so. <clears throat> Oh my gosh, that's an ignominious, uh, whatever. Yeah. How do you say that word? <laughs> yeah. Ending for a, a guy who oh was my in gosh, stagecoach yeah. in the Grapes of Wrath. Just to be ahead in a fish end tank. End up in Ted V. Michael's fish tank. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving from uh, fish tanks to uh, curses, um, you know, the Curse of the Cat People was quite different from the uh, the original Cat People film. and. And uh, Val Luton and Robert Wise, as you mentioned uh, last week, were involved in the making of The Curse of the Cat People. And their careers uh, prospered afterwards, even though um, this uh, thing, uh, this uh, production was nine days behind schedule and cost so much that its budget was raised from 147000 to 212000 so um, they somehow survived uh, the rule in Hollywood that you come in under budget and on time. Uh, can you tell us a little bit yeah, about the, well, the Curse they, of the they, Cat they, People? They, yeah, with Curse of the Cat People, they got they, 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 that wasn't uh, Wise didn't take the blame for that because uh, there had been an earlier director uh, named Gunther von Fritsch, and uh, Gunther was um, uh, very. I mean, he's a very fine director. And he was very fastidious. And, um, and he, you know, he set up the, uh, you know, the, the key ingredients of the film very, very well, but his, his mortal sin that he committed on that film is that he took too much time and that was, and it was spending too much money. You know, he, he just couldn't work fast enough. Uh, and so what they did basically was they replaced him, um, with, um, with, with Robert Wise, who was the editor on the film and Wise had been hoping for some time to get a chance to direct. And he said that he was finally, you know, um, called by the producer one night and said, look, you know, uh, Gunther von Fritsch is just too slow. Uh, he's not going to be there Monday morning. You know, he's, he, we're going to replace him over the weekend. And, um, you know, so do you want a chance to direct? And why said he felt kind of bad because he liked Gunther von Fritsch and he felt bad, you know, kind of sort of taking his job from him and that, you know, wished he could have done something to defend him. And he hesitated just a moment, and the producer said, "Look," he said, "Let me let me emphasize. You know, if you're not either you're directing it for the picture Monday, or somebody else is directing the picture Monday, it would not be Gunther von Fritsch directing the picture on Monday." So by the time Wise came into it, he you know he he worked well, and he had been um, uh, you know he was very fastidious, and he he was able to work work quite fast and kind of bring it up a little, you know, so it wasn't a complete uh, financial disaster and didn't go, you know, completely wacky over schedule. 
Um, but um, uh, but that was the problem with that. With the original director, actually, was was simply just could not get into the groove to get it, you know, moving the way that he wanted to. And then, of course, what happened was that uh, after the film had been completed, uh, and of course, uh, we should we should mention that you know Luton once again decided he was going to take an entirely different route. He was given this title, "The Curse of the Cat People," and thought, "Oh no, not again!" You know, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> um, and and um, he decided to make it about a little girl. Right? He made it about the little girl who was the, the, the daughter of, um, of, of, you know, the widower of um, the, the cat woman in the movie, Simone Simone, and the woman that he had married. And, uh, uh, and that, uh, you know, it would be looking into her imaginative mind and how she was getting into trouble. And, and he did this remarkable, uh, crazy thing where he brought back the character that Simone Simone had played, the cat woman, and brought her back so almost like an angel. Right, like a, like a, like an mm-hmm. angel uh, that came back and spoke to the little girl and this sort of thing. So it's a very very strange film. Uh, but then he decided he did, and, and a wonderful film. But he decided he didn't like it at the, the ending at the end. So he put the film back into production again, and of course that added to the cost by by shooting another a revised ending later on. So uh, and in that one, that's the one where Elizabeth Russell, as the spinster in the house, comes up the steps and scares the little girl and. And uh, it's very, very moody and scary and, and, and so on and so forth. And um, I have a kind of a strange story about that scene, uh, which you, you might enjoy. And that is that Elizabeth Russell, I, I knew quite well. She had played the actually the original Catwoman in Cat People. She's the one in the, the lady in the restaurant who actually looks somewhat like a cat, kind of yes. feline. And she stands up and walks over to Simone Simone and says, Moya Sestra, which means my sister. All right, in Serbian, and uh, and you never see her again. She makes, she makes this one incredible, vivid uh, moment uh, count. You know, it's great impact, and goes away. Well, she had a larger part then in Curse of the Cat People, uh, in which she's this lonely uh, young woman who's living in this spooky mansion. And uh, at the end of the picture, as I say, she comes up uh, in its revised ending and scares the little girl. Well, years ago, I watched the film with Elizabeth Russell who at that point was in her mid-80s. And um, we watched it at a film convention in Baltimore. And um, we watched the film, and it got near the end, and it got to the part where she was coming up the stairs. And she looks really scary coming up the stairs. I mean, you know, she, you know, she looks like Lucifer's mistress or something coming yeah. up the stairs. She's really very, very frightening, wonderful, scary presence about her. And also very beautiful. That was a great thing with Elizabeth Russell. She was very beautiful, but she also was very scary in the movies. Interesting combination. So she's coming up the stairs in this scene to scare the little girl, and Elizabeth Russell is sitting next to me. She's sitting to my left. And I look over at her, and she is watching the screen, and she is just frozen. All right? She's just staring at the screen, like frozen, watching this, this scene play, seeing herself from back in 1943, all right, when the, when the film was shot. And at that point, it was about 1990, all right? So, you know, a long time had passed. And um, she's watching this scene, and uh, the, you know, shortly after that, the film ends, and everybody in the room applauded. And Elizabeth Russell got up, and no exaggeration, she ran out of the room. She ran out of the room. Oh. And she ran out into the corridor outside the screening room, and she ran along the screening room, on the second level above the lobby. She ran to the escalator. She got to the escalator. She did not ride down the escalator. She ran down the escalator. 
She ran across the lower lobby. She ran through the door and she headed for the garage. And I was chasing her the entire time. Right? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what, you know, what to do. I mean, she was obviously in an absolute state of panic. Yeah. And um, I finally caught up with her and she turned around. She was finally winded. I mean, she, she had run a very long way, actually. And I, I finally caught up with her and she turned around and she kind of laughed and kind of collected herself. And she never actually articulated. But what I could gather was that she just was so frightened or, or, or unnerved um, at seeing herself from all those years before. Oh. And seeing herself being presented in such a scary way and seeing herself, you know, so dramatic and intense and, and, and youthful and, and, and all these things on the screen at that point that she had, you know, it, it, equating herself at that point in her life with, with herself back in 1943 had gotten to her and she just literally panicked and ran. Wow. And, um, and, and I remember taking her back in cause they had a question and answer session and I brought her back in because everybody was, you know, waiting to see what was going to happen. And I, I brought her back in and, uh, she sat on the stage and then she was fine. She calmed down and she answered questions about the movie and so on and so forth. But, um, I have never seen anything like that happen. I've, I've never seen anyone panic that way uh, 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 and just run uh, like she did. And the movie did it. That Bal Luton movie, just you know, which she was a very, uh, very important part, just absolutely, um, you know, terrified her, and she just literally ran away from it. What an unusual so, experience to have. Very, very, mm -hmm. and uh, I was, I was very, very fond of her. She was a very sweet lady and a very, very nice lady, and 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 totally humble. I mean, you would if you would talk to her about the great impact she made in those films, she. She just would kind of shake her head like, you know, where are you coming from? Why are you saying that? I mean, what, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wasn't really all that good or I wasn't really you know, all these all these things. And uh, but, uh, you know, she, she she was not a, a fan of herself in any way, stretch or form. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, she just was. Uh, but but she was a, she really was. She was a, a remarkable actress, even though she didn't know it. And. And I, maybe that was part of it, too, just seeing how much power she had on screen back in those days and, and yeah. presence uh, surprised her. And um, she just, it was, you know, like seeing herself in another life and all she went. Wow. Would you, yeah. Would you say, uh, would you say, Greg, that uh, Curse of the Cat People, it's been described by some as a touching and psychologically complex family film couched in a ghost story. Would you agree with that? That's a very good description. Yes, it is. It's a very, very fine description. It really is, because it really gets into the mind of all these people. It gets very much into the mind of the little girl. Uh, it gets very much into the mind of the father, uh, who is trying very hard to be a good father, but it's, like, just can't help himself, just keeps hitting all the wrong notes all the time. Um, it gets into the point of the, the view of the mother. It, it even it gets into the point of the, the, the angel character that Simone Simone plays. And it gets into the mind of uh, the Russell character, who you really feel very sorry for because she's just, just incredibly lonely in the movie. She's just, you know, she's she's um, uh, she's lives with her aged mother in the movie, and the mother dies, and she's all alone, and, and she's angry at the little girl for having received a lot of affection from her mother while the mother was alive. And uh, she, um, uh, you know, uh, you even feel sorry for her. So uh, it, you, you, it is kind of a case history, a psychological history of everybody in that film uh, in about 70 minutes. And, um, uh, and, and also, you know, at various times manages to be 
you know, a very good horror film. Uh, uh, it has its moments. It has the typical, what they call the Val Luton bus, which they used to put in all the films, which was like a sudden visual and moment and a, and a, and a, and a sound moment that was calculated to make the audience scream. And usually it was something very harmless. Uh, uh, you know, in the original cat people, it was actually was a bus uh, that pulls up and, and releases its brakes while the, uh, the heroine Jane Randolph is is uh, walking through Central Park and is afraid the Catwoman is stalking her. And suddenly this bus pulls up and, you know, this brakes, the brakes go off and the doors fly open. And they, they said, you know, when that movie played in 1942, people you know, just jumped out of their seats because the, the tension had built up. And all of a sudden this little bit would release it. So it's a great movie. It's, it's it's one of my one of my favorite movies. My two favorite loot movies are um, Curse of the Cat People and The Body Snatcher. And um, and Cat People is a uh, you know uh, is, is definitely up there as well. Oh, absolutely. Now continuing with uh, the Cat People, uh, there was the remake in the eighties. And so uh, my question for you, because I, I watched that recently as as well, just as like. To compare the two, there's not really a whole lot uh, other than a couple of scenes that were kept the same. What are your feelings about remakes like that from original material? I mean, because there's there's been a few, you know, with the uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, the Thing from Another Planet, which was redone by John Carpenter. How do you feel some of them get it right, or some of them completely miss the original concept? Well, the, 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 of course, the problem is that very frequently the, the original film is so good that it's it's almost virtually impossible to top. And um, uh, they have to come up with an, either an entirely new concept at which they're in trouble for not sticking to the original you know, to the original story and making it act, an actual remake, uh, or they're they're forced to be to force to force it, you know, to put things in there that are that are going to be uh, uh, put in for the point of view of. Of, of you know just kind of like you know horror for horror's sake or blood for blood's sake or violence for violence sake or that sort of thing and um sometimes sometimes that kind of stuff can work i mean i'm you know I'm, i i wouldn't say that you know for example um even though i like the older horror films i wouldn't say that none of the new ones are, are fine horror films and i wouldn't say that there's no place for blood and gore in certain horror films uh you know the modern or the, the modern ones uh but um you know it it, ha- it, it it's all theater and it has to be, you know, calculated to be used in the right way. And if it's not used in the right way, it can just misfire. And if it misfires, then you just have a mess. So I think there were a lot of things good about the Cat People remake. I thought that, you know, that Natasha Kinski was very good. And I thought that another tool was very good. And, and um, you know, they, they did some interesting things with, um, uh, you know, the pool sequence, which is one of the favorite famous shock episodes in it. And so on, but um, it just uh, you know I don't I don't know how long it's going to be remembered as a classic film or as the original is it, is going to be up there forever. Oh, absolutely! I you know I think one of the things that makes the original so uh, wonderful is the use of sound and shadow. Oh yeah, what you don't mm-hmm. see that allows your imagination to to run wild. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's the thing. And that's what, that's what Luton used to say. And, and, and Karloff used to say, and a lot of the people who were masters at this would say that if you allow the audience to be the actor, you know, they'll come up with something far worse than any actor or any director or any screenwriter or whatever is, is, is ever going to come up with. You know, they'll imagine something, uh, you know, they'll go in their own psyche and come up with something uh, imaginative that will that will scare 
uh, scare them worse than anything that you can do to scare them. So, yeah, mm -hmm. good point. Absolutely. Um, so you have plenty of experience with uh, horror films. What would you recommend for our viewers if, if they, uh, let's say, younger folks who probably haven't watched some of these older classics or maybe somebody who's willing to give them a shot for the first time, what would you say would be your top five that anybody should start out with? Or if you're just a movie lover, you should be watching it uh, because it should be on your list. Well, I would say... Um the original Frankenstein. I think the original Frankenstein has sort of a magic about it, in my, in my opinion, that 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 always works. And um, again, because of the particularly the, the, the direction by James Whale and particularly the the star performances by Karloff and Colin Clive, um, they're they're really incredible. Um, I would say that uh, Bride of Frankenstein is a remarkable film. Uh, that uh, what. Uh, what Karloff manages to do in that film is almost miraculous as the monster, as, as far as monster coming, you know, to, um, uh, uh coming to, uh, you know, developing his soul and so on and so forth. It, 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 it's a marvelous film. It has some great humor in it. And it's just, uh, it's a really, really cool movie. Um, a, a film that we mentioned, uh, briefly earlier is the film, the black cat, which was the first film that Karloff and Lugosi made together. Mm, yeah. Um, they both just devour, uh, the screen in that they're both brilliant. It's, 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 they made eight films together, but this is one of the, uh, probably the only one in which they really are on equal footing as far as them both having, uh, comparably great roles and, um, watching those two, uh, legends together in that film, uh, is, 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 is really should be watched because of the fact that they really were such phenomenally fine actors. And, um, and to see them playing off each other in that is, is, is wonderful. And plus the film itself is, is and I mean this in a in a complimentary way. It's so incredibly sick. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it has it has everything in it. It has necrophilia and 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 it has black you know a black mass and it has a skinning alive at the end and so on and so forth. And I mean, it's 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 a very very disturbing film and it's a very horrific film for that reason. And so I would have I would suggest people watch that one. Um, I back to Val Luton. I would say The Body Snatcher uh, again is a great great film it, it's it's of course based on robert lewis and stevenson's story it's it has marvelous atmospheres directed by robert wise um uh, karloff gives what might be what many people consider his greatest performance even more so than the frankenstein monster uh in it and he is great beta lugosi has a, has a good cameo uh, appearance if you will in it and and really shows you know what he could do in a in sort of a straight acting role um, as opposed to, you know, a, 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 an actual horror role. And um, uh, so I would suggest that one. And I would suggest the 1963 version of The Raven, which is a, basically a comedy. And it's just wonderful to see Vincent Price and Peter Lorre and Boris Karloff uh, all having fun, which they really do. They just have a romp in that movie. And um, they, they really, really do have a blast. And... Um, you know, it's something that I'm thinking of while I'm saying that, that, of course, these are all films that are, you know, most people now see on their television screen. They don't see them in theater. And yeah. films were, of course, all originally designed to be seen with other people in a theater uh, for the reaction. And um, uh, which had a lot to do with how the, you know, how the film ultimately went over. And um, one story I always remember when I was about, I guess, maybe nine or ten years old. Uh, the film House of Usher came out with Vincent Price. Oh, that's and, a good which, one. Uh, you know, the AIP film, and it's, it's, it's a terrific film. 
And it came out in the summer. And I remember going with my cousin in Baltimore to see the film. And um, the, the theatrical uh, response of the audience, which were mostly kids, uh, I'll never forget it. I mean, they were just so scared and they screamed. I never heard screaming, you know, my life till the afternoon that I saw that movie. And, uh, they, you know, things would happen when they, you know, when Madeline Lusher was trying to get out of the casket and so on and so forth. You know, the, the kids would scream and they'd, you know, they'd run up the aisle and hide in the back of the theater. And, and uh, uh, you know, they just, it was just, it, it was almost like they were part of the show. Yeah. You know, seeing them respond to it that way. And I remember coming, we came home that night and we were so scared. Uh, he had a little pup tent in his backyard, my cousin, and we slept in the pup tent and, and, uh, that night. And, and, um, we were terrified out there. I mean, you know, we were afraid that Vincent Price was walking up and down in the alley, yeah. you know, he was going to come in and through the gate any minute. And finally, at one point, my cousin said to me, I have to go and ask my mother a question. <laughs> and, uh, he went in and he never came back and left me out there. Oh no. So, uh, <laughs> So, uh, you know, it was, uh, yeah. And so it really impressed me with the, uh, you know, with, with, with the power of the theatrical power and later in later years, uh, I did a lot of acting, um, in, in, in the Baltimore area and so on and, um, stage acting. And, and I would think about the fact that, you know, how, how important it is to try to grab an audience the way that film you know, grabbed an audience. It was, I I know people don't necessarily, uh, you know, think that much of Roger Corman as a, as a showman, but, uh, as a directorial genius or anything of that nature. But in that particular case, that film just was, Mm. was, uh, you know, it, it, it worked, it hit all the buttons and man, that day, that, 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 those, those, those kids came out of that theater just absolutely emotionally exhausted. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, we went and saw it again the next day. You know, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> I believe it. Well, I, you know, I and think... they screamed again. Everybody <laughs> screamed again and ran out of the theater, and it was the same thing. You know, it, was, it, was, yeah. were, it got to him the second time. So, well, there's something <laughs> about Roger Corman. I, I'm a huge Roger Corman fan. I think he's a fantastic director, and there's a lot of uh, modern yeah. day directors that were heavily influenced, or they said they came from the school of Roger Corman. Um, yeah. but he really did influence cinema in a big way. And also, you know, talking about, uh, audience experience, I think, uh, William Castle, who's part of that same group there, um, also, you know, that audience experience, you know, putting skeletons on cables that would come down during, yeah. uh, you know, the movie or the shocker where he had buzzers in the seats or, uh, 13 ghosts where you could put up the visor and see the ghosts or make it disappear. Just right. I mean, something I think is completely lost on audience uh, audiences today it is and that's absolutely what it's really all about is getting getting in touch with your audience doing whatever you have to do to get the audience emotionally involved and get them into the palm of your hand and uh you know the great directors were able to do it as we were saying and uh and corman did it and i, I like i say i don't think he's ever received the credit that's doing oh no uh, for I, yeah. what he did with his films um and which and because so many of them are so fondly remembered and people you know so many of them are are, are you know beloved movies oh, and absolutely. um because he knew what he was doing and um uh you know he was able to package uh what he was doing so effectively mm-hmm. and um you know he was uh yeah yeah he's um yeah. Well, he's, um, how old is Corman at this point? Is he like close to a hundred? He's gotta be. I, and you know, the funny thing is he's still working in movies. He still produces films and, and does stuff. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's still very active in this business. Um, that's what I was going to say. It was uh, the great thing is that he's still working and that's, that's the important thing. The important thing yeah. is that after all these years, he is still in there doing what he does so well. And, um, uh, you know, that he's nothing, nothing's ever discouraged him. And, um, uh, 
you know, he's, um, he's just great. He's yeah. just great. I, I, I know but at times it must've been tough working for him. I remember an actress named Betsy Jones Moreland appearing at a, at a convention and she had made a um, work for Roger Corman and somebody said, what was the experience like? And she said, it was, you know, it was pretty dangerous. <laughs> and so I said, what do, they, what do you mean dangerous? And she said, you know, well, whenever you work for Roger, you always either up either, you end up either maimed or dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Uh, so, so, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that may have been, but he, whatever, whatever happened, it certainly got up there on the screen. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of my favorite stories about Roger Corman is he, when he directed the original <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors, I believe he did it in three days. It was a ridiculous and amount incredible. of it's very short amount of time. Everything was run and gun, but mm-hmm. I mean, not only did it make a lasting impression on uh, audiences, but inspired an off Broadway uh, play, which later got mm-hmm. turned into uh, a musical film and is going to be remade sometime with I think this year or next year with uh, oh, an really? all star cast. Yeah, I'll be darned. Yeah, we'll see. That's what that's what I mean. He knew what he was doing. He had the vision all the time. And he didn't have to waste time. You know, he didn't he didn't have to have a whole big long schedule because he knew what he what he wanted and where how he wanted it, and mm-hmm. and you know came in with it with it all in his head. And uh, that's um, you know th- that's a wonderful talent for a filmmaker to have. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think a lot of those old time uh, directors, Gary and Greg, uh, they they plan on working until you know the last moment on their deathbed because. Uh, <laughs> That, that was the same with our friend uh, Ted uh, V. Michaels. Uh, he was, mm-hmm. you know, uh, on his on his deathbed in his final days, still yeah. trying to uh, direct a movie. Direct a movie, if you can believe it. <laughs> Literally, yeah. over yeah. over that's, sixty. That's, that's, what, that's what keeps him going. Over that's, yeah. what, that's what brings the stimulus in, and and, yeah. and and keeps him going, and keeps him fired up, yeah. and yeah. and as years their lives, and. Um, yeah, it was like you know, like Carlos at the end, you know, working in a wheelchair and yeah. having oxygen nearby on the set and all that sort of thing. But he said, you know, it's this is wonderful because you know when you're working, you forget all the other, you know, difficult things that are happening in your life, and and mm-hmm. uh, you can just focus on the work and yeah. and do what you love, and it it just makes all the difference. Absolutely. So um, that's what, great. That an, is great. What an inspiration for us all. Well, be- absolutely. Before we uh, wrap up for the evening. Um, there's one last thing that Gary and I were wondering about, and uh, in your book, I believe it was, uh, we read about you visiting some very unusual movie locations. Oh, yeah. Including one connected with Frankenstein. Oh, yes. That was, of course, Malibu Lake, which um, is where the scene was, famous scene was shot where, where uh, the monster plays with flowers with the little girl, with little Maria, and yes. um, gets bewildered and picks her up and throws her into the lake. And I, it's interesting. I always wondered for years and years and years where they shot that that scene, and I heard all kinds of answers. Somebody said they, you know, well, you know, they had the lake up on the hill at Universal, and they went up there, and and somebody said it was out at Lake Sherwood, out in the valley, and there, and so on and so. We went back and forth and back and forth. And finally, one day, uh, a musician friend of mine mentioned that he had played at a party at Malibu Lake, and um, he, I said, I wonder if there's any chance that that's the lake. And we drove out there. It's a very long drive, way out. It's actually about maybe about ten miles from the ocean. And uh, up in the mountains, in the Santa Monica mountains. And uh, we drove in and they had a little office there at Malibu Lake. And I went in and I had the famous still, you know, from the movie of, of the monster kneeling down opposite Little Maria. And um, I said, you know, can you identify the, the background? And they said, look right out this window. And looked at the window and there was the, the exact topography. 
you know, wow. the, the, the hills and the mountains. She, they said they, it was right out there. They would have been, you know, they, we, they, they can take it to the exact spot uh, based on that picture and based on the background. And uh, it, it was very, very unusual because um, uh, it was interesting because right about the same time, I had made friends with Marilyn Harris, who played Little Maria, uh, and had told me all about the shooting. And, uh, you know, it was, it was so cool because she, you know, she just absolutely loved Boris Karloff. Uh, as the monster. She never saw him except as the monster. And she just absolutely loved him. And uh, again, tragic case. She had a very horrible uh, stepmother, uh, who uh, sadistic stepmother who treated her horribly. And um, uh, uh, I, I said stepmother, I should say adopted mother, uh, a mother who had adopted her for the purpose of putting her into movies and uh. Uh, who treated her abominably and, and uh, you know uh, tortured her and just unspeakable things. And she was terrified of, of this woman. And yet she went up, she saw Karloff on the, you know, on uh, at Universal that morning, you know, with his makeup on and the, you know, the, the electrodes in his neck and <laughs> all those things. And she said, I walked right up to him and took his hand and said, can I ride with you out to the lake? Uh-huh. And he said, oh, would you, would you please, darling? And she said, oh, yes. And so she said they became instant friends and she just loved him all her life, although she only really knew him uh, from working with him, you know, those couple of days out at Malibu Lake. Wow. And, um, to the extent, she said that, um, that, you know, he died in 1969 and she said the weekend that he died, I couldn't stop thinking about him. I hadn't heard anything that he, that he had died, but I just couldn't stop thinking about him. And, um, I, uh, uh, sat down and wrote him a letter and said, you know, dear Mr. Karloff, you know, I only worked with you at one time in Frankenstein, but I've, I've loved you all my life and I've always thought about you and you were so gentle and you were so kind and you were, you were all these wonderful things. And I just want to let you know, you know, how I feel. And she said she, she took the letter out Monday morning to put it in her mailbox and turned on the radio before she went outside and they announced that he had died uh, the previous day. So she never got to send him the letter, but she was just, um, she was just in love with him. She just, you know, as a little seven year old girl, she just was absolutely in love with him. Whereas, you know, she was just terrified of life with her mother. And in fact, she mentioned, she said that when, uh, when, uh, Karloff, um, uh, you know, uh, picked her up the first time and threw her out into the lake that her mother was just hysterically excited, you know, by all this. And her mother screamed, uh, throw her in again, throw her in again. You know, um, it was just, and, and, you know, that just haunted her. So she was haunted by this woman all her life. And yet, uh, she, uh, you know, was just cherished this memory of Boris Karloff and, um, all that had happened out at Malibu Lake. So it's a beautiful place. And, um, uh, you know, still very, very remote, very, you know, up in the mountains and, and, uh, very idyllic looking, lovely pastoral spot. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of incredible movie magic happened there. And on oh, yeah. this, uh, memorable moment, this beautiful moment, uh, between Boris Karloff and the little girl, I think that's, uh, probably a fitting place for us to uh, say that we have certainly appreciated you being with us this evening, uh, Greg and, uh, I've been uh, sitting here totally entertained and enthralled Absolutely. by everything you've been saying. Can you just uh, remind our listeners one more time where they can find you on the Internet? Yes. First of all, thank you again, uh, both of you, uh, Richard and Gary, for having me. It was a great pleasure talking with you. And um, any, they can reach me. Uh, your listeners can reach me. I'll be very happy to hear from any of them about any, anything we discussed today. Uh, or if they're interested in buying one of the recent books or anything of that nature, uh, my website is www.gregorymank, 
and that's uh, G-R-E-G-O-R-Y-M-A-N-K, all one word, dot com, www.gregorymank.com. Uh, and um, the, the books, as I mentioned, also are for sale on Amazon. Uh, but yeah, please yeah, drop me a line at, at the uh, at my uh, my address, and uh, I'd be very very happy to to uh, to hear from any of your listeners. And uh, it's as I say, it certainly has been a pleasure talking with both of you gentlemen uh, this evening. So thank you very very much. You're welcome, and thank you again. And uh, folks, uh, that was a very incredible story, and actually a series of incredible stories within that. So oh, yeah. The finest uh, film historian I've ever talked to in my life. I'm Richard. I'm Gary. And uh, we hope you'll join us again next week for more incredible stories. So until next time, we'll see you here. <laughs>